Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today's episode is brought to you in association with Perkbox. I've been fascinated with looking into Perkbox. I think employee engagement is obviously a big focus for more and more firms. And Perkbox is one of the best ways for firms to try and show some recognition for a job well done. There are over 200 exclusive employee benefits on the Perkbox platform. And they cover things like reward and recognition. They cover incentives. There's even healthcare on there, all designed to improve the employee experience. Anyone who's looking to improve the experience of work for their team would certainly find some benefit there, improving motivation, productivity and staff retention. Find out more at perkbox.com. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. What do we discuss in this podcast? Well, basically, it's just anyone who's interested in improving work culture in terms of making their day-to-day jobs more enjoyable. We try and delve into some of the psychology and the evidence behind it. And there's a real treat today. We always look at how we can improve our jobs. Every episode tries to give some evidence on that. But we've never done a lot on sport. I was always concerned how applicable it really was. So we've done two episodes today that you should see in your feed. If you're a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, you'll see that, or on Spotify. This episode is a discussion with Damien Hughes, who's a professor at the Alliance Manchester Business School. He's a professor into organisational psychology, and he's written this remarkable book, The Barcelona Way. Damien lives this admirable life. He helps advise the Scotland rugby team. He helps advise premiership football teams. He he works across the whole realm of sport, helping teams be better. And fantastically, he shares some of those moments today. So he tells us the process he goes through. He tells us uh, a model that he uses. You're going to find this enjoyable. If you do like it, please share it. So please share it on LinkedIn. If you tag me or if you tag Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat on Twitter, when you share it, you'll have the opportunity to win some really nice gifts. There's signed copies of Damien's book. There's copies of Daniel Coyle's The Culture Code. And there's copies of my own book, The Joy of Work. If you are interested in this, the one thing that will really stand out about Damien's discussion is something called the Baron Hannon model. And you're going to find more details about that if you are interested on the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. You're going to love this, I think, a fantastic discussion, a delve into the detail behind the scenes of how Barcelona rebuilt their culture. If you've also listened to the Liverpool Klopp episode, Damien at the end goes into how he applies that model to Liverpool under Klopp. 
So I'm delighted you join me. Always the first thing I ask people to do is just explain who they are and what yeah, they yeah, do. Yeah, of course. Okay. So my name is Damien Hughes. Um, it's probably easier to explain what I do by there's a few different roles. So one of the roles I do is um, I'm a professor of organizational psychology and change. And then the second job I do is I work as a consultant where I work right across a wide range of organizations so from education to business to at the moment quite a lot in elite sport looking at creating high-performing cultures and environments. And then the third job I do is a write, so I've done a few different books very much around these topics and trying to bring them into the mainstream and just get people to understand how some quite simple principles around organisational psychology can make a big difference to our families, our businesses, our social groups, um, and about how to go about doing that. So, and the, and the reason why we're talking today is because of this wonderful book, The Barcelona Way. And I've never done an episode at all about sport until now because I've always been reluctant to, you know, I've, I've been cautious to draw comparisons, but I think you make uh, a very strong case. Did you have any reticence about thinking how applicable sport is to real world? Yeah, definitely. I often get tired of the amount of metaphors that are drawn, especially in the corporate world, from the world of elite sport. Because I think anyone that labours that metaphor of sport and business is either misleading you or doesn't understand either of them. I've been lucky enough to work in, in both, and where I feel the metaphor of comparing sports teams falls down in the business world is on two principles. The first one is the kind of behaviours that can take place in a sporting environment just would not be tolerated within a corporate environment. So, for example, bullying can happen and it can often be excused as being part of the day-to-day. -day by coaches uh, or by players? Mainly by players. So okay. what I would say is, I've been in groups where, say like, if I've got an issue with you, I'll wait till training starts and then maybe smash you in training. Okay. So you know why I've done it, right. but I can legitimise it by saying, well, it was just a bad tackle or something. So that kind of bullying happens more, uh, more readily than you might expect. The second thing as well is that, from a, um, that coaches wield far greater influence than corporate leaders do. So um, the punitive effect, I can get rid of you, I can drop you, I can sell you a lot easier in the sporting world than what employment law quite rightly allows to happen within business. So those two things I often feel warp the picture quite considerably and that's why I think the metaphors don't help. The way I sort of reconciled it in my own head though, Bruce, was that I don't work in sport, I work with people that sometimes happen to work in the industry of sport. And I feel the bit around the people side of it is common regardless of the industry, whether we're talking about sport, business, education, the people bit is consistent. Um, so that was the way that I reconciled in my head of choosing and, and, Barcelona. And talk me this, because I guess the one, one of the additional differences between sport and real work is that most of us struggling in real work to actually measure whether someone's doing a good job or not. And, and I guess in sport, there's a closer feedback loop, right? You say something Definitely. to someone, you move Messi from the wing to, to the, you know, up front, and you can see directly there's an impact of it. Yeah, it's very immediate, that's one thing. I think secondly as well, there's, a, there's, a, there's more transparency in sport than what business does. So it was an old phrase that Kevin Keegan, the old England manager, used to say that he had, Alex Ferguson had 70,000 people turning up to his board meeting twice a, uh, twice a month and they can see very well whether what he's doing is working or not. So I think there's a purity about sport that allows you to see that the winners are the winners and therefore when 
So once that's been established, it's easy to then delve a bit deeper and understand a little bit of why those that consistently win are doing so. You've written this wonderful book, The, the Barcelona Way, which really is the Pep Guardiola story, right? It's sort of what Barcelona di did as a club before they appointed him and then the, the actions he took. Yeah, so the idea behind it was that um, I wanted to write a book around this topic of organisational culture and uh, my publisher said, would you be interested in doing one through the lens of a sports team? Now the reality is an awful lot of sports teams pay lip service to this topic without ever really investing time and an understanding of it. So we narrowed it down to three teams that we felt had genuinely used the principles of organisational psychology as a guiding principle for um, how they organised themselves. One was the New Zealand Rugby Union team, one was the New England Patriots, and then the third one was FC Barcelona. Now, um, I think it was airfare costs why the publishers were keen on Barcelona, <laughs> but, but the reality was New Zealand's been done quite a lot. New England Patriots, I don't understand enough about it to, to immerse myself in that world. So Barcelona seems to be the obvious one. So when we started to delve a bit deeper, what we saw is that back in 2006, they'd achieved uh, the ultimate in European club football. They won the European Champions League. It was the second time in their history. And then they said in their own words, they got complacent. They thought that was going to just continue um, rolling in. In the words of one of the board members I interviewed said, the next two years were like watching a slow motion car crash take place. And the manager was Frank Rijkaard then? Frank Rijkaard, yeah. So they made the decision to dismiss Rijkaard, but rather than do it and then just panic, they decided to, do, uh, to investigate the concept of culture and how that could then influence who the next coach was gonna be and some of the hiring and firing decisions uh, that, that, so that they were gonna make. So I wanted to jump in with the book at the start of that, of that process of how they went about doing it and then try and unpick it in a little bit more detail. Because you described this Baron Hannon culture model. Yeah. And, and were they intentional? Did they know that model or is that something that afterwards you applied to, to their thinking? A, um, a bit of both. So when I spoke to some of the people I interviewed, they were familiar with it, but I don't think they were as familiar with it at the time that they were making the decision, right. but they were in hindsight. So this is by two psychologists. Go on, explain yeah. what the model is. This topic of organisational culture and being a competitive advantage is relatively under-researched, and there was a couple of guys from Stanford, Baron and Hannon, that set out with this idea of, to prove that culture mattered an awful lot. Given the proximity of Stanford to Silicon Valley, it was almost like a, like a, a greenhouse yeah. that they could go and test this theory. So they started what was intended to be a two-year study, ended up lasting them 20 years, but they went and looked at startup businesses to see the types of cultures that emerge and how sustainable over the long term it is. So the five types of cultures that they identify, unless this is harnessed, is that some cultures go down the star route, which is um, like Real Madrid in football okay. terms, or Google in, in Silicon Valley terms, where you get the brightest graduates, you pay them the highest salaries, you stick them in the room, give them the best facilities, and then you sit back and wait for all that talent to explode and deliver phenomenal things. Now what the research says is when it works, it's spectacular, but there's far more frequent examples where it'll crash and burn, and the failure is equally spectacular. So Real Madrid have adopted this as a policy, and this is part of the reason European football is a great metaphor, because competing in the similar leagues, there are other different models to compare it against. 
So Real Madrid have got a policy called the Galactico model, which is about recruiting the world's best players. Now, in the period they've done it, they've had some periods of really quite startling success. They won three Champions Leagues uh, on the trot. But equally, in the 15 years since they've had it in place, they've only won the league title three times, which is the longest barren period. One of the coaches, a man called Diego Lopez, had a great line for it. He said, the trouble with the star culture is everyone wants to be the head waiter, but nobody wants to wash the dishes. So it's often the back of house that will fail. The second cultural model is the autocracy. This is where it's driven by one or two powerful figures. And it tends to be their way or the highway. So Chelsea under Abramovich is a great example. Or genius with many helpers. Yeah, yeah. Or like Steve Jobs under the first incarnation of Apple. When he came off the board, the share price fell off a cliff. I I think a really good pertinent example has been uh, Manchester United because they're relatively topical. But in 2005... The, an American family, the Glazers, bought Manchester United out and Alex Ferguson became a seminal figure in that buyout. And I think you can start to see how the culture changes by Ferguson's language. So he used to have the famous phrase that there is nobody bigger than Manchester United. After 2005, he starts to add the caveat that there's nobody bigger than the manager of Manchester United. So one of his lines that he talks about in his own book is that when Wayne Rooney became the highest paid player at the club, he went to the board and said, I need to be the highest paid person. And he said, in the time it'll take you to listen to this sentence, they agreed that that was the case. So Ferguson wanted to earn more than Rooney? Yeah, so it gives you an idea of the power that he wielded. So when he retired in 2013, the vacuum left by his absence has created all kinds of dysfunction in the six years since. The third type of culture you get is a bureaucratic culture, and this is where it's driven by middle management. So in, in, the, in the Baron and Hannan study, they say this is where there's a powerful layer of middle managers. So decisions are made via rules, regulations, policies, procedures, and they say that it's almost like decision via committee. So it's a slow-moving bureaucracy that, um, that tends to take hold. And again, a great example of that is somewhere like Liverpool. Right. So in the last 10 years, since the Americans bought them out, John Henry and his Fenway group, they have a transfer committee in place that makes decisions on who they buy. There was a period where they, in a five-year period, they recruited 55 players to play for them, so the equivalent of a team a year, which gives you an idea of, but they were making decisions via a model called Sabernomics. So it was very much around stats rather than personality driven. Sort of inspired by Moneyball. Yeah, very much, yeah, by the Billy Bean stuff. So what's interesting there is they've won the Champions League recently, but it's been an 11-year journey to start to achieve this kind of success, which shows you the the slow, incremental culture that emerges around a bureaucratic culture. The fourth type of culture is an engineering model, and this is where you bring people in that have got a really deep knowledge uh, of a technical skill, so but in a relatively narrow domain. So you hope that somebody's looking at a bigger picture and adding up all this technical expertise to become greater than the sum of its parts. Now what you find is the big flaw with these cultures are people often make excuses for talent. So people might behave in a dysfunctional way, but because they're brilliant at a certain technical aspect, people tend to excuse it. So a great example of that is probably Arsenal in the last decade under Wenger. So the fifth type of culture... Give me an example from the real world of business for that one. Well, you probably look at tech companies there and things like that that right. bring in people yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, people that have got a very specialised yeah. knowledge in that regard. So 
and some of their behaviours can be dysfunctional or unacceptable in a different type of culture, but because they've got that technical expertise, they often get excused and people just tolerate it for it. But then the fifth type of culture is a commitment model. So when we talk about a high-performing culture, what it's often a shorthand for is a commitment culture. And this is where a culture is driven by really powerful sense of purpose and some really clear, transparent set of behaviours that underpin it, non-negotiable behaviours. So this is the Barcelona, what Barcelona adopted? Yeah, very much. So it's interesting that in the, in, in the corporate world, organisations that go after commitment culture, one of their first hires will often be uh, uh, somebody to work in HR. So it's about putting people very close to the centre of what you want to do. Now, the research from Baron and Hannan said, out of all those five different types, the most successful is the commitment model. So they estimate, on average, it's around 22% more successful than the other four types. I mean, there's other research that said, if you can get commitment cultures right, employee retention follows too. So what would it look like in the real world? If you're in, so outside of football, what would a commitment culture look like? So this is where um, you start off with this idea of having a really clear sense of why do we exist? And it's not just about making money. So, if you, so, so it's this idea of what difference do we make? So it might be that, for example, I work with a high street retail business that have this sense of purpose of we enrich people's lives. Now, part of the product that they sell is about enriching people's lives. Now, the reason I'm, re- I'm, I'm reticent is just because of a, a non-disclosure that I sign with them. They talk about enriching people's lives, and then they do so by have a, having two really clear behaviours, elegance and discretion. So one of the ways that they do this is, they're not ashamed of making money. They say, it's not about making money or enriching people's lives, it's both and. We can enrich people's lives and make healthy profits. But one of the ways they do it is that they take 10% of their profits every year and give it to their staff with the instruction that they have to go and distribute it in their local communities and enrich the lives of people that are making a difference. It might be a women's institute, it might be a a Cub Scout group, it might be the Duke of Edinburgh scheme in the local community. You go and give the money to them. But using the trademark behaviours of discretion and elegance, you can't tell them where it comes from. So you just have to make it as a private donation. Now, what I've found working with this business is the levels of respect and loyalty and commitment that are engendered by the staff are through the roof. It can often feel almost like cult-like when you go in as an outsider. They're clear about what they're doing and they're clear about how they go about getting there. So then that transparency and consistency seems to give people that sense of safety and security mm. to then want to come and be themselves within that environment. Okay, so, so let's, so Barcelona was sitting there and whether they imagined this before or actually it made sense afterwards. So they elected to, to go after this commitment culture. Yeah. And so did that, how did they set about choosing who was going to replace Frank Reichardt? Well, this was... They chose someone who had no experience at top level at all, right? Yeah, the exactly. coach. So they pulled together a five-person shortlist. So rather than panic when they decided to replace him, they let him finish out the end of the season. And during that season, they started to have a look around. So they pulled together a five-person shortlist of who they considered to be the leader of this cultural revolution. Now, the fifth most qualified candidate of the five that they interviewed was Pep Guardiola, who was the man that they ultimately decided upon. Now, now, 10 years later, the success he's got, it almost looks like 
a no-brainer. Why mm. wouldn't you choose him? But at the time, he was a 37-year-old novice that was a former player and had one year's experience of coaching a reserve grade team. So there was no guarantees that it was the right choice. But when they went and interviewed them, they applied a criteria that Warren Buffett advocates in the, in the Berkshire Hathaway group that he says leaders should be assessed on three criteria. There are three things that you should really think about. One is, do they have the energy to do the task? The second criteria is, are they intelligent enough to do the task? And then the third one is, can they role model with integrity the behaviours that you're, you're building your culture on? Now in the case of, so when they applied those three criteria, Guardiola became the standout candidate because their view was, he was young enough and still had the energy. The integrity, he'd been a player at the club for 20 years prior to this. So they knew his characteristics and how it was aligned to this Catalan identity they had. The third one around the intelligence, they said, maybe it, it, that isn't as high as the others, but they felt they could accelerate that process of game intelligence by giving him almost like a coterie of uh, mentors including the famous Dutch footballer Johan Cruyff, that almost mentored him to speed up that process. And it, it, well, in his playing career, wasn't he sort of famed for uh, being a brainy player, not necessarily a gifted player? Yeah, so there's a great quote that when he first arrived at Barcelona's academy called uh, La Masia, he arrived as a 10-year-old boy, and one of the coaches was supposed to have said, well, what does he do? He's, got, he's not fast, he's, he's not particularly skillful. You know, what, like, what can he do? And somebody's supposed to have said, just look at his head. It's his brain that will differentiate him. So he was an incredibly intelligent player. So this was a guy that he was, he, he, he was almost as well quite worldly. So he came from a working class family in a town called Santa Pido that was just outside of Barcelona. So his father was a builder. His mother was, the, uh, was a housewife. But also, although he comes from fairly humble beginnings, he, um, he was a guy that was quite well read. One of his best mates is a man called David Trueba, who's a famous Catalan poet. This was a guy that would go for uh, dinner with Gary Kasparov, the, the chess grandmaster. He was doing all this while he was still playing. So he was a man that wasn't just consumed entirely by football. He knew that there was a world outside of it. He was constantly looking to ways to educate himself whilst right. working in that world. Because one of the first people he appointed was a volleyball expert, right? So, so he, uh, a water polo player, Water yeah. polo, right. So he's now got the job. He's got yeah. the job. They, they, against all the odds, they've appointed him to this job. Um, and he appoints a water polo expert. Yeah, so one of his best mates is a man called Menel Estiar, who's a fascinating character. So his nickname was the Maradona of water polo. So he was regarded as the finest player of water polo ever. Him and Guardiola were mates and he appoints him to come in with him so he still has him now at Manchester City and this guy is almost like Guardiola's mentor or his conciliary, the guy that sort of is in the shadows. But what he also did at Barcelona was he became the defender of the behaviours so he just became another set of eyes and ears of the way that people operate. So the famous story that he tells is that he used to sit on the substitutes bench and during games, when everyone was distracted by the game, he would be focusing like a hawk on the bench. So he was looking for who were the players that were emotionally invested in the game and cheering their teammates on. And who were the guys that were sulking and chatting and oh. chewing gum because they hadn't been picked. Because what he was looking for was, it doesn't matter that you tell me you're a team player. If you're not invested in that game, I can observe your behaviours. And if you're sulking because you're not in, uh, on the field or in the team, 
you're not really a team player. So he would be there to observe these kind of behaviours and almost weed out those that were committed to the cause versus those that were a little bit lukewarm or otherwise to it. So together they, they created this commitment culture. So I guess the question is, what are they committing to? Do they, do they have a set of values? Or yeah, what, yeah. What so are they committing to? Barcelona's got the geopolitical context of wanting to be, represent the very best of Catalonia to, to both Spain and the world. In the 1700s, Spain subjugated Catalonia as a region. So it's not without coincidence that I think it's the 17th minute of nine and 19 second of every game they play at home chance for Catalan independence still go up. So they have this sense of, this is why we exist. So they're often referred to as the army of Catalonia, the football team at Barcelona. Now, what success looked like for them was only laid down relatively late in the 1970s. So when they recruited, at the time, the world's best footballer, Johan Cruyff, to come in, Cruyff quickly came in and diagnosed that as a club, they suffered from Madriditis. So he said, you're constantly measuring yourself against Madrid. You're constantly uh, assessing what Madrid are doing and reacting. And he diagnosed that he said, you cannot be successful if you've got the mentality of a victim. So he came in and said, Barcelona, if we're representing the best of Catalonia, we do so by representing the features of style, flair, panache. So again, it's not just we win trophies or we play well. It's not either or, it's both and. We win trophies by playing with this stylish, uh, entertaining football. The bit that's interesting though is the how you go about doing this. So we've covered the why, the what. The how is the bit that becomes really fascinating. Because what they did was he said, when we're at our very best, what are the behaviours, the trademark behaviours that define us as, uh, as a team? And they came up with three. The first one is humility. So they had this rule that said, don't come in here showing off status, wealth, privilege, or previous successes. Because if you do that, that would indicate that you lack humility. If you lack humility, you don't listen to others. If you don't listen, you don't learn. If you don't learn, you don't get better. And if you don't get better, you've got nothing to offer. So humility is the first one. The second one is hard work. They say, you've got this far by working hard. This isn't the end of the journey. This is just the end of the beginning of the journey. You continue to invest in your talent. And then the third one, as reflected in that example of the guy on the substitutes bench is, you put the team first. So if there's ever a clash between what might be right for you as an individual, but what's right for the team, be under no illusions, choose the team option. So what they do is they go and communicate these three behaviors really clearly, and then say, you either commit to these and be part of this journey, or you choose not to, and that's fine as well, but you won't be part of us as we advance on trajectory that we're planning. What Guardiola was very good at doing was getting stories to reinforce okay. the behaviours. So rather than just say, put the team first, he would talk about in 2009, in his first year, they get to the Champions League final and they have an injury crisis in defence. So he goes to this guy, Seydou uh, Keita, who's a midfielder, and he says to him, you're going to play for the team, but you're going to play at fullback because you're going to help us in a crisis. And after a bit of reflection, this cater comes to Guardiola and says, I really appreciate your honesty, I appreciate you picking me, but I don't think I'm your best option in that position. I think there's somebody else that would do a better job than what I think I can do. Now, Guardiola explains to him and says, listen, I appreciate your honesty, but if you're not prepared to play there, you won't play at all. And this cater goes, no, I understand that, but you need to do what's right for the team, not what's right for me. 
So this is the biggest game of his life. Biggest game of his life. He's going to lose out on it. But this is a guy genuinely bought into the sense of that I'm committing to these behaviours. So Guardiola talks about that almost became the gold standard. So for anyone else that sometimes behaves in a churlish way, he's got an example to say. Cater did it at the biggest moment of his career. So if he can do it, that rule can apply to any of us. The, the interesting thing is, I guess, any of us, like you've got those rules, humility, hard work, team, the, the team. But I guess the critical thing that any company finds and any culture finds is that if you've got someone who subverts those rules, then you've got a fundamental issue, right? And yeah. so Guardiola's just been promoted from the B team manager to running you know, one of the, the most beloved teams in the world, if, if they weren't necessarily the biggest in the world then. Yeah. But he's got this issue where I guess there's some players who are against that culture. Yeah, very much. So, so what's interesting with this, and again, if we transfer it into the world of work, which I know um, is your area, Bruce, that I think there's two big mistakes that often happen here. And, and, I'll, and I'll show you how they, how they rectified this at Barcelona. But two mistakes is, first of all, People talk, in the world of, in the corporate world, we often talk about our organisational values. And I think that is a bear trap that we can fall into if we're trying to do this, because the term values is, by definition, an abstract term. Values on its own doesn't mean a great deal. What you find in organisations is people can state that they adhere to a value without ever needing to do anything to back it up. You might believe in your business of diversity is a value that's, re- that, that's to be really cherished. But say you have some people that have grown up with racist views or they've grown up in a household that have pejorative views. Now, if they're clever about it, they're not sat in that meeting sharing those views publicly so they can sit in a room and nod when you talk about the value of diversity without ever having to behave in a way mm. that genuinely does embrace diversity. So. I often say, your behaviours should reflect your values in action anyway. So talk about behaviours because they're visible and therefore can be observed and fed back on, rather than values. So Barcelona spoke about this in terms of, in in very clear behaviours. The second one is as well, too many organisations have too many of them. So you come up with a long shopping list of behaviours, which means that they're, they're either bland to the point of abstraction or they're too unwieldy to remember anyway, whereas three is the perfect number. So what Barcelona had was those three behaviours. So one, they're tangible and and very evident, but secondly, they're easy to remember. So when it came to sharing it with their players, and what they were basing them on as well, by the way, wasn't anything that was absolutely, so it wasn't like created in a vacuum. They'd sat down and asked the question, when we've been good in our history, what are the behaviours that are constantly present? So I sometimes talk about, with teams, success leaves clues. When you're good, why are you good? What are the behaviours that are consistently present when you're successful? So that's how they'd come up with it. So those players that didn't want to be a part of it, they were able to weed them out a lot quicker. But you said that, but didn't Ronaldinho win the Ballon d'Or the, the, either that year or the year before? Yeah, and, so, and he was renowned at that time for not being hardworking. Yeah, well... well Ronaldinho is an interesting one because he was their star player. So when he joined the club in 2003, he was this charismatic Brazilian that almost led them out of the wilderness years that, that had preceded it. So for three years, he was regarded as by far as the world's greatest player and the success came with that. 
What happened after 2006? One of his teammates that I interviewed gave me a great line. He said he retired from playing football. He just forgot to tell anyone. So it was almost like he'd burnt himself out. So he became increasingly distracted by living the life of a playboy. So he had been a hard-working player as well as being charismatic before this. And then after 2006, he started, there were stories of him coming to training direct from nightclubs. There was people excusing his behavior. There were stories of him in games when he felt he'd done enough, he would fake an injury so he could get off the field and rest up. So these kind of practices started to become increasingly evident. Now, what was interesting was that culturally, the impact of this being allowed to go unchecked in the 18 months that he was allowed to do this, in the same time, uh, 10 out of the 23 players that sat in the dressing room separated or divorced from long-term partners. Now, you could argue it was a coincidence, but there was incidents where players had been caught in compromising situations in his company. But because he was the best player and he was behaving like this and being allowed to get away with it, it almost created an unspoken permission for others to follow his trend and they didn't maybe have the same And almost talent. creating a culture, you know, it, it might not be the, the designed culture, but it's creating a de facto culture. Yeah, it's an unspoken culture. Yeah. And then this is where you can see the danger of it going to the star model that we spoke about because then when people go, oh yeah, but he's a good player. Oh yeah, look what he's won. Oh, look at his talent. And you start making excuses for that because of his superstar mm. status. That's where you've got an unhealthy culture that starts to emerge on the back of it. So what did Guardiola do there? So when Guardiola came in, so when he was offered the role in the March before he took over in the July, and, and this is a great lesson for any corporate leaders listening to this, you're never more powerful than before you start your job. So when they've offered you the job, that's when you can really wield some influence. So when he took over in the March, he asked that they got rid of those, the, the three dysfunctional players were removed before he took over in the July. Which were Ronaldinho. Deco, and an African footballer called Samuel Leto. Yeah. Those three guys, Guardiola asked for, asked for them to be removed from the team so that when he came in, he could almost lay an imprint across. Now what was interesting was, it, it, so, when he did, so he was given permission to remove them and um, he, the first two, Deco and Ronaldinho, he got rid of right away. The third one, Eto, got a 12-month stay of execution and then he got rid of him. But what was interesting was he recruited four players. Now, two of them he brought up from the youth academy and two we recruited from outside. And I found a brilliant quote from him in the Catalan press that really intrigued me, where he'd given a quote that part of his reason for the selection criteria for these four new recruits were that they didn't have stupid haircuts, sleeve tattoos or earrings. Which, when you talk about the modern day footballer and when we talk about diversity, you go, that's a pretty intriguing set of criteria. Now part of his rationale behind it was, he says, I was looking for something about the identity of these four guys. And I wanted to have guys that were keen to fit in and assimilate to a group, not to stand out because of the experiences of what gone on. So these four guys were brought in. Now I often think, when he talks about this idea of identity, this leads us to another area that I talk about in the book, this development of cultural architects. These are your leaders without title. Your cultural architects are effectively people that make decisions via identity, as opposed to cost versus benefit. So what do I mean by that? Well, think about it in a, in like a, a normal corporate environment. You imagine if you're walking past the corridor and you hear two colleagues slagging off somebody that's not present 
And you know that that's not what the culture is about. It's about being honest and open or transparent. So when you walk past them, there's two criteria you will use to decide what to do next. Some psychologists will say you'll make a decision via cost versus benefit. So you'll listen to what they say and you'll do a very quick in, uh, inventory in your head that says, who are they? Who are they talking about? Do I have the time? Do I have the energy to challenge these behaviours? And you do. The, and if it comes down on the side of uh, the cost isn't outweighed by the benefit, you probably walk past and ignore it. The other way that you would make a decision is you do things via a sense of identity. And when you ask yourself, and when you do that, you ask yourself three questions. Who am I? What's this situation I'm facing? What would somebody like me do in this situation? So you're not worried about the popularity. You're worried about what you would consider to be acting in congruence and doing what's right. So what Guardiola was keen to do was, he said, I didn't need to change your whole dressing room. But what I did need to do was make sure I had five people and uh, that were bought into what we were trying to do. Isn't the they danger there though? It. Don't your sort of cultural icons, your, your sort of talismanic figures, need to be someone, you can't just necessarily promote someone from the youth team, they're not going to become the cultural icon. Yeah, yeah. I think you, right. you mentioned sort of an, an icon would be someone like, um, you, you mentioned at Manchester United that Cantona was the. Yeah, yeah. So, so these architects emerge via two criteria, Bruce. So, Often they will emerge via social or technical skills. So they're either the best at the job and everyone, when they, when they have an opinion, everyone listens because of their expertise or they're socially gregarious, larger than life characters, charismatic people that when they speak, people tend to follow them or warm to them. So they tend to be the two. So a quick way that I often do it when I work with teams is once we've agreed the trademark behaviours, like the equivalent of humility, hard work, team first, I just get the players to vote privately. Okay. Or I would do this in the workplace, get a team to vote privately, give them three votes and say, who are the three people that best represent those behaviours? What I like then is you can almost go to those people and they have a mandate to lead. So you can give them the evidence that says, you know what, 17 out of 20 people in that dressing room respect you for these three behaviours. If you see somebody transgressing those behaviours and you were to say something, you have the credibility and the social capital oh, got it. To, to be listened to and respected. So then you give them, and then you can help them with their influencing skills to reinforce and embed the behaviours you do want and challenge the ones that you don't. So you've got the cultural architect, but what do you do when someone's just completely going against the culture? You know, Zlatan Ibrahimovic was one of the ones you mentioned. Yeah, so he's a great example. So they recruited this huge egotist. So for those listeners that are not aware, he was a Swedish footballer called Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who is, is, is an icon uh, in European football, but is a huge egotist. It's fascinating though, because he was renowned as an egotist. So to pick someone, if no. the values were humility, hard work, team, yeah. it seems like... How's you know. he there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's a really good question. And it's a question I asked the decision makers. What they said is that, and again, this is where the parallels of sport and business often fall down. Your, your ability to, to interview and assess the characters of some of these guys is often limited because mm. they're contracted to another team. So they said that what they'd done is they had gone and spoke to Ibrahimovic uh, during the 12 months that they were interested in signing him. And they'd been really clear about these three behaviours 
and he was adamant that they'd got him wrong and that he was prepared to adapt. Classic interview yeah, BS. Yeah, yeah, so they've told him, exactly. <laughs> He's told them what they want to hear. But then what's interesting is there's little signs that, so when he eventually signs, he phones the club up and says, are you sending a private jet to collect me? And when they go, no, humility's key, we don't do that. We'll, put, we'll get you a seat on the next commercial airliner. So you see little signs of it, and, but then for the first four months, people often forget this because of what followed. For the first four months, it was classic induction <laughs> territory. Yeah. He behaves himself, so he signs up to these behaviours. And the Catalan press are saying, this guy's the best ever uh, non-Spanish footballer that's joined us and his, his debut uh, three months is, is incredible. So, and he scores really important goals and he plays really well. What's interesting is when he hits adversity. So when things start to go wrong and it doesn't get his own way, so he gets dropped or when he gets injured, that's when he reverts to type and starts behaving as an egotist. Now, what they did was they allowed him a couple of occasions where, say, he gets dropped for a game and he turns up for a car in a yellow, he turns up for training in a yellow Lamborghini to make a point that they can't contain Zlatan. And they Why, because he's not allowed normally to drive? No, so one of the ways, so one of the behavioural um, uh, sort of traits that they use around humility is you can only drive a club car into training so everyone gets a black Audi. And part of the reason for that is they say, because if you're driving in and you're showing off the latest supercar that you bought, that indicates a lack of humility and a lack of respect for the public. So when he gets dropped, he turns up in a yellow Lamborghini to make his point and they immediately start getting uh, worries about him. He goes home to northern Sweden at Christmas and he's not allowed to drive a snowmobile in the mountains because of insurance purposes. He does and he injures himself so he can't work hard. But the tipping point comes from the play into Milan. So he's been there now about seven months. You think he should have integrated into the culture. They have an injury crisis and they ask him to help the team by playing in a slightly unusual position. And he uses the immortal line to the coach, I'm a Ferrari, you're planning to drive me like I'm a Fiat. And he refuses to play unless he's picked in the position that he's best at, which shows that he's putting his self-interest above the teams. Right. And that was when, when Guardiola goes to the board, they have a really clear choice now. They say, if we back Ibrahimovic, we throw everything that we've done to develop a commitment culture out the window and we go back to a star model that we felt would eradicate it by getting rid of Ronaldinho. So the board have a decision that we have to back the coach here and get rid of the player. So he's only there 10 months when they lose 25 million pounds on him. So right. it's painful for them. But they said the cost of getting rid of him was huge culturally yeah. to the rest of the squad of realising they weren't that they really were committed to this to this new approach. So a classic example of a principle is only a principle if it costs you money. Bingo, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. I think you said based on soconomics, the sort of the equivalent yeah, of the Yeah, the Simon Cooper stuff. Yeah, yeah, that managers, the margin is more on the downside than on the upside. Yeah, massively. And I like quoting this uh, in the corporate world as well as sporting world. So uh, there was two guys, uh, Stefan Szymanski and Simon Cooper went and studied how important is the role of a coach when it comes to a team's performance. What they found is, however talented, charismatic or gifted they may be, they don't impact on the team's performance by anything more than around 10%. Now I like quoting that stat because they've replicated it in the corporate world and seen a, a similar equivalent. 
And I'd like it for two reasons. One, I think it often infers a little bit of humility on leaders to go, it's not all about you. Mm. But then secondly, it gives them a great, it gives a leader a sense of control to say, how are you gonna maximize your 10%? There was some other interesting work done in a study of Australian rules football. So a 70 year study of the best coaches, how, in other words, coaches that maximize their 10%. And what they found is those coaches where there is a cultural fit, where they embody the culture that they're asking the rest of the organization to do, tends to help to maximize more of that 10% impact that they can have. So it's about cultural compatibility. So if we go back to the Guardiola example that we're talking about, they had plenty of examples of him as a player and just as a person that was humble, hardworking, and constantly putting the team first. So I'll give you an, an example from him. So when he'd been in place for about 18 months, he got an offer from a Catalan bank called Sabadell Bank to go and do a series of lectures to their staff. And Guardiola accepted this contract and the Catalan press accused him of being greedy, venal and vain for doing it. Now, it's never been revealed, but I've been told by a few sources it was around three quarters of a million euros he received for doing the job. And he went and did the job. He spoke at these lectures and these masterclasses. Now, Guardiola's never responded to this, but what I was told by several people that had been part of his setup was that he then took the money and distributed it amongst all the backroom staff. So the cleaners, the canteen workers, the caretakers, the kit men, the masseurs. He gave them the money that he'd got. Now, I think in that one anecdote there, you've got a leader that is humble enough to recognise the role of other people around him, hardworking enough to do something beyond his job to reward them, but then putting the team first by the way that he then distributes. And do you think that was, he's found himself in a difficult situation and he realises the currency of culture is often the stories that people tell. So maybe he'd accepted this thing and because it's, that reminds me very much of your Cantona Nicky Butt story yeah. about the, uh, the, the story of, do you want to explain that one? Yeah, so there's a great story. So Cantona was a cultural architect there at Manchester United. They basically had done a video and the royalties from the video amounted to about 16,000 pounds. So the, the senior players got together and said, you know what, it's not that, significant money in their terms. So they said, why don't, um, that if they divided it up, it'd be about 500 quid each. But they said, so what we'll do is, we'll put all the money in a pot, 16,000 pounds, we'll draw it out, and whoever gets that can walk away with it. So they all agreed to it, apart from some of the younger players, uh, the youth team players, they say, no, no, 500, 300 quid or whatever it is, is significant to you, so you can take the money. But there's two youth team players, Nicky Butt and Paul Scholes, that go, no, 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 put our name in the hat as well. We weren't a part of this. And they were just kids, really, at the time? They were kids, like 17, 18 years of age. So they put them in, and the player that ends up drawing the £16,000 uh, winning ticket is Eric Cantona. So he takes it, and Roy Keane tells the story that the rest of the players go, you're lucky, so-and-so, and things like that. But the next day, Cantona comes in with a cheque for £8,000 two cheques for £8,000 and gives them to Nicky Button Paul Scholes. And the reason he says to them is, you were prepared to gamble to win big, which is, on, and he's, which is what Manchester United is about. We don't play to not lose, we play to win at this club. So he wanted to reward them for doing it. 
Now, it's a great story, yeah. and you're right that I think we're really good at reverse engineering this, but sometimes in cultural terms, that's what we need to do. So, like the in Ingvar Kamprand, the guy that founded IKEA, the stories about him would travel to the airport on public transport, or he would stay in budget hotels because he embodied this cultural idea that IKEA was about making products accessible for, for, for ordinary people. Whether that those stories are true or not. Yeah, but we forget them at our peril, though, don't we? Like the, the importance of those iconic stories seems so important to us. Yeah, very much. Yeah, and I think that's what Guardiola was doing. So, so, so whether he did get caught out and decide, oh, I'd better distribute this, I'd, it almost doesn't matter. Mm. The fact that he did then do it and it becomes part of the currency means that people buy into him as a bloke. So when he's asking that them, let's sign up to this, let's do this. He's not asking you to do something that he's not demonstrated evidence that he's prepared to do as well. Back with more Damien Hughes after this. Today's episode is brought to you in association with Perkbox. More and more firms are thinking about how they can improve the experience of work for their valued team members. That might be showing more recognition or giving more reward or even simple things like providing healthcare 24-7 for their employees. Perkbox is designed for exactly that. It's designed to support the entire employee experience. Perkbox helps employees live better in life and in work. Find out more at perkbox.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now back to Damien. The, the, I guess the fascinating thing is that having done all this at Barcelona and, and implemented it, he then went on to Man City. So how much do you think of what he's done at Man City has been influenced by this model that he introduced at Barcelona? It is, but I think he's clever enough not just to try and lift and shift it. Right. So having been into Manchester City now, I'll, I'll, I'll give you just one simple anecdote. So having been in there and been lucky enough to do some work with some of the guys around there, you go into their, their staff car park, their players' car park, and it is a, and it is a high-end supercar okay. showroom. And the most expensive car of the lot is Guardiola's. Okay. Now, I think that's quite interesting. Now, I haven't asked him this, so this is my... Uh, uh, supposition on it but I think humility isn't 
one of the key behaviours they're trying right. to infer at Manchester City. Now, Barcelona... It's almost swagger in comparison. Yeah, exactly. Let's be confident. Right. Because they don't have a track record of success. Right. Like what they had at Barcelona. They don't have... Um, so they're not the biggest team in Manchester historically. So maybe he's come in and diagnosed. We need you to stick your chest out. We right. need you to have that swagger, that little bit of arrogance about you. So I think he's been clever enough not just to come in and say what works at Barcelona can now be transplanted here. I think the principles are similar, but the uh, but the execution is different because it's a different oh, that's it's a different place. And how do you think you would discover? So say if you you like you work with sports teams. So so you're trying to hit on what the three values I mean, it's all about three. So whether it's swagger or whatever it is at Man City, he's got three different values and maybe some of them are shared and some of them aren't. How would you as a sort of sports consultant, as a management consultant, go in and help people try and find their values? I do it. So one of the teams I work with at the moment is the Scotland Rugby Union team. So I've been working with them for the last couple of years. Uh, so I can give you a bit of the background there. I, um, I do it by working with the coaches to say to them, success leaves clues. When we're good, why are we good? So don't attribute it to luck or talent or conditions were good for us on the day because they're, they're all changeable things. What are the behaviours? So if you look at a consistent pattern of when you've been successful or when you've been at the best that you can, what are the behaviours that consistently emerge from that? So stuff then, that's already there, yeah, yeah. but on so, their best day. Yeah, so you're, not trying to, so you're not trying to create something in the vacuum of what you don't know is possible. What you're trying to unearth is the concrete foundations of what's already present. So I'll give you a, a neat example. Because I guess, I guess that's critical, isn't it? Because sometimes if we're looking at the best of the best, some of these examples aren't applicable. But if we're saying that these, you, know, you, you might not find yourself in the best company in your sector, but thinking about what you are good at, yeah, so, the so I often think the difference between a great team is that gap between your best and worst days. So a great team has bad days as well, but they can fix, they can fix it a lot quicker than what average teams do. Average teams let the gap widen. So I'll give you a neat example because it, it's relatively topical. The, back in March, um, the Scotland team went down to... Um, London to play England in the last game of the Six Nations at Twickenham and we walked in at half time and we were getting smashed 31-0 when we, when we when the game finished it was a 38-all draw so it was it's still classed as the biggest turnaround in international rugby history people have been intrigued enough to go what on earth happened and assume it was some kind of like Churchillian speeches being delivered in the dressing room or, were you in the were you yeah. at your okay, yes yes yeah. so, or, or, or people think how many teacups got smashed yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in a run and the reality was it was none of them a large part of what the coaches did and they are really supremely talented guys that went and did it but they executed executed this brilliantly to watch them they went and said in that first half, have you demonstrated our trademark behaviours? And we've got three behaviours. We talk about we do everything with high energy, we do, we're brave and we take risks and we stick together. And they said, have you demonstrated those three behaviours? And the players were self-aware enough to go, no, not really. So then we looked at the game plan but said, can you execute the game plan and marry that up with the behaviours of what we're like? And the players 
were really clearly had identified and went, yes, we can. They were clear about how they went and did it. Now, I'm not saying when they left that dressing room at half time, we anticipated they were going to turn it round, but we were clear that they knew how to show themselves the best version of who they are. Now, we could only do that by having spent time in advance of that identifying what our best behaviours were like. So those players weren't sat there thinking, they're asking us to do a miracle here. We were just asking them to demonstrate behaviours that they were eminently capable of because we'd evidenced them plenty of times previously. Is this similar to like the teacup thinking, the thinking correctly under pressure, the sort of the Clive Woodward thing? Is, sort of, is, it, is it about that, the getting those ideas into people's heads so you're not leaving it to, to random chance? Yes, yeah, very much. So, so stuff like that can only be done well in advance. You can't make it up in the moment because, um, because that's almost like Hollywood fantasy. You have to be clear about what these behaviours are long before you're ever going to do them. And they have to be reinforced constantly so that they're part of training, they're part of selection, they're part of recruitment, they're part of how you exit people. These have all been evidenced that when you do it, so when you're, when you're under pressure, it's the old military saying, you don't rise to the performance, you descend to your level of training. And part of that is being clear about what are the behaviours that if we, if we marry that up with the talent that we have, that is where culture starts to allow people to flourish. I was really interested to the values there of the Scotland team. So what were they? Uh, high energy? We do everything with high energy. We, do, we take risks, so we're brave. Because the nature of what we're asking people to do is, is to play on the edge. So by definition, they're going to make mistakes. And that's fine. So it's not the mistake that's the problem, it's how you recover from the mistake to try it again and again. And then the third one is we stick together. So we remain as a resolute team. So there's no splinters, there's no cliques, there's no divisions in what we try to do. So we're really clear about those three behaviors. And, and when we've shown up and demonstrated those behaviors, we've given some of the world's best teams a real run for the money. So we played New Zealand 18 months ago and got beat by just a couple of points. But we, like we really gave them a run for the money, the world's best team, because we just showed up and demonstrated who we are when we're at our best. We weren't trying to copy anyone. We tried to impose our style. Have, have you witnessed any of this in teams that are severely underperforming? Because, you know, performers yeah. that, that are operating at their best. But what about when self-belief is low, when morale is low? Are those yeah. things applicable as well? Yeah, very much. So, and, and, and again... I've done this in the corporate world as well, but, but I, I, as you said earlier, if you use sport, it just gives you evidence of it a lot quicker. I did some work a few years ago with the team in the Premier League that uh, were really quite beleaguered. They'd sacked two coaches, they had a caretaker coach in, they were in the bottom three, and I was asked if I would go and work with them. So when I got the playing group together, the question I asked was, I... Is your league position reflective of the talent that sits in this room? In other words, are you as bad as your results indicate? And their answer was, no, we feel we've underperformed. So what we did there was, right, I got the players to do a really simple exercise. I said, um, let's imagine you're the coach of the team they were playing that weekend. Give his, give his team talk for him. What's he saying about you before he plays you? And the players, what that's great for doing is it gives them 
um, a sense of perspective and a sen and you also find out who's who's deluded versus who's got high levels of self-awareness so they gave a team talk based on their strengths and weaknesses and I said are you happy with that as a as a reflection of who you are and they said no so what we then did was say what's your best game you've played in the last 12 months and they all collectively agreed one particular game I said give the team talk that the coach gave after that game and out of that we identified three clear behaviours that they, when they showed up, they were in evidence. So my question was, if we marry up that your talent with those three behaviours after you played at your best, do you think you'll get out of trouble? And I can distinctly remember one of the players, he was like quite a loud, charismatic fullback, went, would have never have been in effing trouble if we'd have done that in the first place. So my job then was just to focus relentlessly for the next three months on, let's do these three behaviours. So I'll tell you what they were. They were sensible hard work. They said, don't do everyone's job, just do your own job, but do it really well. The second one was resilience. They said, we won't get it right first time, but we'll keep persevering. And then the third one was, we will stick together. So we said, let's marry those three behaviours up. Now what became really interesting was, over the next three months, the players started to almost decide who was going to be in the team or not. So they had um, a player that was in the squad on loan from a bigger club. And this guy was a bit of the Zlatan, a bit of an egotist, yeah. didn't want to buy into it. The senior group of players went to the coaching staff and said, don't pick him. Because when he comes under pressure, he's not resilient, he doesn't stick to the game plan, and he's not doing sensible hard work, he's doing stuff that's about making him look good. So the players rejected somebody who was supremely talented, but wasn't buying into the team ethic. They said, we would rather have a younger player come in and do that job, but, but guarantee us those behaviours than somebody that's more talented, but, less, but more erratic as well. So the reason- Did they stay up? Yes, they did, yeah, uh, with about two games to go. Now, there's a, so there's a nice story about this. That but that's, just quickly before you do the story, uh, you say in the book that, you know, actually if you're trying to change, um, if you're trying to do anything, setting behaviour targets rather than outcome targets is a better result. So setting yeah. actions you're going to do, it might be we're going to meet every Monday at nine o'clock or we're all yeah. going to get our documents done by Friday lunchtime. Setting those behaviour targets seems to work more effectively than we're going to win each game. Yeah, exactly, because that's the equivalent of, um, like when somebody says to you, I wouldn't lose weight, I wouldn't lose a stone in weight, and you go, well, cut your leg off then. Because if you're only bothered about the outcome, do something like that, because you'll get there a lot quicker. You'll, you'll cripple yourself in the process, yeah. but, but you get the outcome if that's all we're focused on. But if you say, you know what, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna eat a salad at lunchtime, I'm gonna go for a 20 minute walk three times a week. They're tangible things that will get you to the same outcome in a more sustainable, healthy, longer lasting way. So focusing on behaviors. So one of the big things that when we come under pressure, one of the things that we often, uh, that can often go missing for us is our sense of control. So think about when you play a game of chance, say like, uh, when you go around any casino and you see people playing dice games in a casino and before they roll the dice, people will blow on the dice. Now, if you stop and think about it, you go, what difference is your breath going to make on that dice? And the answer is, well, none. But you're playing a game of chance. So what you're showing is how your brain tries to mitigate for when control isn't there. You make up the illusion of control. 
So this is where we can often become busy fools when we come under real pressure because we, it, the need to do something. Whereas long before you come under that pressure, if you can align it to clearly define behaviours and targets that you do have that are within your control, within your remit, it keeps people that bit calmer and a lot more focused on what, on what it is they're trying to Tell do. Tell me the story that I interrupted. Yeah, sorry. So, so this team I was describing when you were saying about how do we keep it, when I, I knew, it, now this sounds a bit incongruous, but it's relevant to their world. When I knew the culture was starting to be embedded, was that they played one particular game against the team and if they won the game, they were guaranteed to stay up. If they didn't, they, it was still precarious and there was about three games left in the season. And they were winning up until the last minute and one of their players, a, a, an egotist, that somebody that was demonstrating he didn't believe in this, this approach, did something outlandish and ended up conceding an equaliser. Now what happened was in the dressing room when he went back in, one of his teammates said to him, we keep giving you feedback every week against the behaviours and every week you keep ignoring it. He said, the only feedback you're going to understand is this and then put a right hander on his jaw. Now what was interesting was... That's when not that, best practice. No, no, no. And, that, <laughs> and that's certainly not advocated in the corporate world. And that's why I say it's relevant yeah, yeah. to that industry. Yeah. But what I always find interesting is when moments of high drama like that occur, my job is almost stand back and see what happens around it. And what was interesting was nobody moved. So in their own way, what they were saying is justice had been dispensed because they'd been trying to give this guy feedback through sort of formal channels. Some of the cultural architects had tried to informally take him under their wing. They'd sought to do it in lots of different ways. And this guy just kept rejecting it. Now, they tolerated that until it started to impact on performance. And then in the end, that was their way culturally of rejecting this guy and saying, you no longer have the right to be a part of this group that we've, we've invited you in, you've spurned the chances, and now you're actually having a detrimental effect on us. So it was quite an interesting, but so it might sound a little bit barbaric or unpleasant for people to hear it, but from my point of view, observing it, I was like, this culture's starting to take yeah, hold. Because they're finding their own ways of reinforcing and embedding it for those that want to be a part mm. of it, but equally rejecting those mm. that consistently reject that consistently reject the culture. Fantastic. I mean, look, you know, the, the book's thrilling and, and full of so many brilliant <laughs> examples. And I think, you know, I've always been reticent to bring stuff from sport into sure, uh, okay. to work, but I think this is the the perfect example of often a lot of little things that people can do in their own work. And like you, you've illustrated some of that, how you can bring very simple models into to any workplace. Yeah, well, thank you. And I mean, thanks for the invite, because I know to be invited on is a real honor and uh, I'm hugely grateful for it. If you've listened to the Liverpool episode, you might be interested what Damien's opinion is of the culture at Liverpool. I asked him here to diagnose what he saw as the culture of Liverpool FC under Klopp. One of the things that you talk about in your book, The, the Barcelona Way, is you talk about there being sort of five different cultural yeah. systems where star system that Real Madrid might have, autocracy might have been like what Alex Ferguson had, uh, bureaucracy, who, who would be an example of bureaucracy? Well, Liverpool Liverpool, yeah, 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 okay. And But you mentioned an engineering culture, which is how you describe Dortmund, which is sort of where they've got a very specific system they play. Yeah. 
Do you want to... Yeah, yeah. So, so, so what culture's Klopp brought to Liverpool now? I think Klopp, I think he came with that idea of that blueprint of how he, how he likes his teams to play. So I think he's introduced some of that into Liverpool. But he came into a culture where they have a transfer committee, so they have six people that make decisions as to who they recruit. Hence the bureaucracy. Yeah, their criteria is, is using the Billy Bean Moneyball philosophy, so they call it Sabernomics. I think what Klopp has done, though, is he, he's come in as been like the most credible member of that committee. He's very quickly been able to remove players from the club that don't sign up to the philosophy. So I think you're seeing some evidence of what he's doing a bit more down the uh, commitment route. So, for example, they had the defender, Sacco, that very quickly Klopp moved him on from the club. And there was a lot of consternation amongst Liverpool fans at the time because he was seen as their best defender. But this was a guy that had publicly gone out and, and complained when he wasn't picked in the team. His social media postings were all very much about him as an individual rather than the kind of behaviour you'd expect of a respectful member of the team. So I think he got rid of him. I think his treatment of Daniel Sturridge has been, has been illustrative of the way that he's trying to build this team-first ethic. So when Sturridge was seen to sulk or show uh, dissent for not being part of the team, he was removed from the team, he was sent out on loan, and now that his contract's finished, he's, it hasn't been removed. So I think Klopp has come into this transfer committee and he's wielded greater power than maybe other coaches previously because of his track record at uh, other clubs before this, that they knew that he had a blueprint and a plan and they've almost bought into what he suggests. Those two episodes for me are remarkable, fascinating, and I think lots of stuff that any of us can apply in our jobs. As I say, if you want to win a copy of Damien's brilliant book that's signed, if you want to win some copies of Daniel Coyle's The Culture Code, if you want to win uh, my UK book, The Joy of Work, then please share this episode. Share it on Twitter, tag Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, or tag me on LinkedIn, Bruce Daisley. Do those and I'll, I'll be giving those gifts away in September. If you're interested in the Baron Hannum model, like I say, there's a whole page on the website. That's eatsleepworkrepeat.com. As ever, the best way to stay in touch with Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can leave a five-star review. 500 other people have already done that. And I always look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again to Damien Hughes. Fantastic discussion. See you next time. If you've listened to the Liverpool episode, you might be interested what Damien's opinion is of the culture at Liverpool. I asked him here to diagnose what he saw as the culture of Liverpool FC under Klopp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.